welcome back to Love's Labour's Watched, everyone. Uh, your favourite, I always say this, women-focused pop culture podcast. For those of you who don't know us, I'm Helena. And I'm Francesca. We are two 20-somethings, solidly 20-somethings. We chat about thought-provoking, usually female-focused pop culture. We've interviewed authors in the past, including Britt Bennett, Kylie Reid, Nisha Donan, Curtis Sittenfeld... And also filmmakers, including Lenny Abrahamson, who did Normal People last year. For our February episode, we are speaking to author Lucy Jago. Lucy has written nonfiction for adults and a YA novel as well. But A Net for Small Fishes is her first foray into fiction for adults. But it's been a long time coming. Lucy has been researching this novel for the past decade. She's passionate about history and storytelling, having previously worked on history documentaries for the BBC. She's also a fellow of the Royal Literary Fund. A Net for Small Fishes is set in 16th century England, and it's a novel about friendship, gender, scandal and politics. But Helena, I wonder if you could give a bit more of a thorough introduction to the novel. Essentially, yeah, the novel is really concerned with women in 17th century England. So it's set amidst the backdrop of the court of James I, who was the king that followed Elizabeth I, uh, and the kind of intrigue and scandal that follows him and his favourites, uh, particularly uh, a woman named Frances Howard, who is of the famous Howard clan, a la Catherine Howard, for example, uh, Henry VIII's uh, fifth wife, another one who got beheaded. She is married to a man who she hates, uh, a classic scenario, and she basically is looking for help to uh, make her marriage more bearable through having a child, which she is finding impossible to do because her husband won't sleep with her. She basically uh, looks for help from another woman, uh, a lower class woman named Anne, uh, who is kind of like a herbalist assistant to her husband, who is himself a doctor. Uh, and general kind of like woman about town, really. Uh, Anne is an established woman. She's got like five, six children, uh, and she basically has a happy life, but she really wants to help Frankie because uh, she kind of feels for Frankie and she understands that as a woman in this time, even a really high status, powerful, rich woman as Frankie is beautiful too, as she is reputed to be, she is unhappy and Anne wants to help her. And essentially uh, one of the big things about this book is that, Anne and Frankie's relationship and the power, not even power, but the choice they try to take in their lives and the empowerment they seek, i.e. Frankie getting what she wants in her life from her husband and Anne trying to like raise her status and become a bit more independent and recognised for her gifts. She's also like a, a dressmaker, um, basically lands them in a lot of trouble. What's interesting about this novel as well is it's actually historically, uh, it happened. It's about a scandal that happened at the court of James I, including this woman, Frankie Howard and mm. Anne Turner. Um, and again, this book follows the twists and turns of their relationship and adds a lot more focus on the women themselves. So you'll hear from Lucy herself, but she basically pointed out that this, you know, this scandal that happens when Frankie and Anne go about their business um, basically rocked the court of James I. But she realised there was not much really said or written in the history in the historical record about Frankie or Anne themselves and about what happened to them and why. So she's seeking to sort of give them a voice. And it's a really interesting dive, I think, into the world of 17th century court politics, but also the world of women. There's a lot of issues discussed, like women's empowerment and freedom and their reliance on their husbands for money and even also the fact they're meant to like 
give over all their possessions to them and obey them in everything. Um, that discussion of what women can do amongst that and also what women's relationships can mean to each other is really a really interesting take this novel has. Absolutely. As you say, it's a rich novel with a lot of different thematic strands. So it was brilliant to discuss some of these with Lucy and get her take on the novel and her process in writing it and researching it too. So yeah, I think we should dive right into our interview and then we'll connect afterwards to discuss the book in a bit more detail. Yes, and you should stay tuned as well because we're finally delving into the cultural uh, icon uh, event. Phenomenon. The phenomenon that was the release of Netflix's Bridgerton. I have a fun story about Bridgerton uh, that I can tell as well. So do stay tuned for that. But before then, we're going to have a chat with Lucy. So let's go. I think you've really set up now that this like fun story is going to be like me and Reggae John are like actually dating or more like, <laughs> you know, so I was in Bridgerton. But yeah, it's not that, but it is quite a cool story. <laughs> with that addendum, that, what is it, proviso? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go meet Lucy. Hi Lucy, welcome to Love Slavers Watched. It's great to have you here. Just to give us a, a start here, for those who haven't read it, um, do you think you give us a brief kind of spoiler-free synopsis of what the book A Net for Small Fishes is all about? It's essentially about a friendship between two women. It's based on a real historical scandal. The main character is Anne, various things happen, and she meets Frances Howard, who is the daughter of one of the most powerful families at the court, and they spark up a, a friendship. So it's basically about their friendship, which gets them into more and more hot water and ends up creating total chaos. So it's about the, the strains on their friendship and about their lives. So as you mentioned, the novel is based on a real historical event, and features real historical figures. So we wondered, how did you come across that story? And what was it about the story and the history that inspired you to write the book? So I was in the London Library finishing off my previous book and I came across a mention of them, of Frankie and Anne. She was called Frankie by her, her relatives, even, even Frank. So I call her Frankie in the book. And um, I was totally gripped by their story and the scandal that they provoked. Um, but what really surprised me is when I was doing more research, everything that has been written about them, both novels and, and nonfiction, focused on the men in the story, which I find, find difficult to understand because the two women are absolutely central to it. Just, to me, it's essentially their story. So that's what really gripped me. I thought how interesting it would be to see if I could recreate their world and um, try and give them much greater complexity of motive. Because even in the best books on the subject, they are rather dismissed as the sort of epitome of female villainy, who um, obviously in the 17th century, they're called lustful and malicious and vicious. In the 20th century, the books are a little less judgmental than that, but essentially they're dismissed as uh, their motivations are made incredibly simple. And I thought that just doesn't ring true to me. That, that can't be right, there must have been more to it. And so I set off in search of what that might be. Yeah, I, that's so interesting. I, I definitely think that's so common 
amongst stories, historical stories that we know so far is that the women themselves are reduced to a line and then everything else, you know, everything that happens has nothing to do with them. And I think what's quite interesting and certainly something that I've thought about historical novels is that other side of it, that heavy research side where sometimes the characters you are trying to write about perhaps don't even have much academic research behind them and a lot of it has to be done kind of by you as the author. Um, so how was that? Like, did you make use of any particular historical works or approaches or methodologies to actually kind of tease out the historical reality of Frankie and Anne's lives? Yes, well, you're so right that early 17th century, the historical record's pretty patchy anyway. And most of history doesn't deal with people's experience of life. And it tends to focus on men and for obvious reasons, and it tends to focus on sort of certain events that are, that are recorded. So already you have to start from a slightly different approach if you're going to write about women. So um, I certainly did that. A lot of it was about recreating their material world. I found that really helpful. So I went to books that were not about them or resources that were not about them, but were about their time. So rebuilding what London looked like. For example, the first shopping centre, shopping arcade, as we would think of it actually, was established in 1609, which is just at the beginning of my book. So I was able, and there's a lot of detail about that. So I was able to see what time it was open, what would have been there for them to buy. This was a space where women were allowed to go without male chaperones. So there's quite a lot of writing at the time about sort of anxiety. What happens if women are allowed out on their own to go shopping and what do they get up to and so on. So this was fascinating for helping me rebuild the sort of horizons of the possibility abilities and desires that they might have had so that was one um, sort of angle that I attacked and of course I researched this for sort of eight years on and off so I had a lot of time to to go and find a lot of resources because um, I wanted to, to think okay if she's walking down the street what building would have been there a lot of it's been bombed or after the Great Fire of London and so on. So I had to literally recreate the landscape in my head. And then there is quite a lot of stuff about both of them because they were both put on trial and the trial records exist. So initially I thought, wonderful, here's this great resource, historical resource. And of course it must be true because it's you know a matter of a trial and it was written down at the time. But as I did more research, I realized that trials in those days were totally different to how they are now. You were assumed guilty and the judge was also the prosecutor. So he could dismiss any evidence he didn't, that didn't serve his cause. His cause was to make you look guilty. So anything that made you not look guilty, he could dismiss. And if you were on trial, you had no lawyer on your side, you were totally unrepresented. You had not even a pencil to write down what was happening, no chair to sit on. You were kept often in isolation before the trial, so that no one to help you argue your case. So I realized that these trial records were just as much a story, just as full of bigotry and misogyny and so on as everything else really at the time. So even what feels like a historical document, you have to treat with a huge amount of caution and around these two women, particularly so, because they were used as sort of political pawns to make certain uh, political points by either royalists or anti-royalists or so on. So they, they lost their own individuality and they became used really as, as, a, as point scoring. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I guess sort of 
building on that, that, you know, there is a trial and it's based on a real historical event. And the reader might not know how the story is going to play out, but you as an author knew from the outset how the novel had to end. And we were wondering what that process was like for you, knowing that you were sort of adapting this this real story and it had to follow these certain plot points and you could potentially change some things, but you couldn't change that ending. So without giving the ending away, we wondered if you could speak a bit about what that was like. When I started, I thought it would be easier for me, but I knew essentially what the plot had to had to be and where it had to end. In fact, when you're writing a novel, you don't always want things to happen in that order because dramatically it's not really very helpful for you. So if there's a whole year and nothing much happens, but you really, in your book, you want something to happen in that year. Actually, structurally, it was really, really hard to make it an interesting narrative, but to not play with the historical facts. So what it, the, the few things that are definitely known, for example, when the heir to the throne dies, that is a date that we know, and I couldn't fiddle with that. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything that was against what we do know of the historical record. So it was very hard. And without wanting to give away the end, um, I don't even know how I can say this really, but it's very hard uh, to write your main character knowing what happens because you don't want her to know what's happening as you're writing her. So it was, it was a challenge actually. But um, in some ways it's, it's quite nice because when you have this uh, sort of a skeleton, in a way, it's like the mother, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. You know you've got to work it out somehow. So although it took a long time to work it out, I think eventually I found it quite um, inspiring really to have to work out how to do this. I think that's the great part about historical novels as well, is you are in some ways exploring the history as well as reading a story. And I think just while we're on the history for a little bit more, I think you make a really interesting point. I think subtextually through the novel and then also in your um, in your acknowledgements bit at the end about how actually Francis Howard's infamy when it came to what actually happened in the trial itself is actually linked to the outbreak of the civil war and some people were blaming her for like the moral decline of England that may have then led to the witch craze and the civil war and I just think that was so interesting that I wanted to pause on that so for like anyone who's not a historian and that kind of thing and may have read the book and not really leapt on that a bit. Um, can you speak a little bit more about what kind of attitudes to women we're looking at in the 1600s and how that actually does link to the increasing kind of chaos in England that eventually leads to the civil war that's sort of hinted at in the book? Yeah, well, the, the first bit of that question I can definitely answer because um, obviously that was something I had to do a lot of research about and then sort of throw my research away a bit. So, so the book didn't become too much of a sort of political polemic. And I think most people do know that women's lives were incredibly curtailed at that time. So I didn't want to just tell that story again, because that's, you know, quite a well-known story. And also these two women were women who defied that. But certainly at the time, women were expected to be chaste, obedient and silent. So, so my one of the main characters, Frankie, uh, wants to leave her husband, her first husband, because he is impotent. And in those days, having a child was incredibly important if you wanted to have any sort of power or influence. You needed to be providing an heir and a spare and so on. And he was impotent and probably very cruel. Um, but to do that, she caused, this was sort of the first scandal she caused, because 
that was absolutely not allowed at the time. Women were not supposed to have any sexual feelings at all, other than ones that their husbands provoked in them. That was it. So there's a wonderful expression. It's like being cold water and boiling of yourself. So women were not meant to in any way feel anything unless their husbands told them that they could. And same intellectually, they weren't allowed to have thoughts other than the thoughts that their husbands put in their heads. They weren't meant to start conversations. They were only meant to reply to things that men said and so on. They weren't meant to go out without male chaperones except in a few situations. So their lives were very curtailed. Of course, there was a spectrum then as there is now. Um, some people would have been freer in their feelings about that. Others, perhaps the more Puritan side would have been very strict about what women could do, although they, in some ways they would have let women have, have more intellectual curiosity. They're allowed to read the Bible and so on. So it's a much more complex picture than just saying they were meant to be chaste, silent and obedient, but essentially that's what was accepted, um, that they were, that's what they were meant to be. So a lot of the book is exploring how Anne and Frankie were able to negotiate their way through these expectations, these social expectations of them. And then what happened, how that changed, that's what I was saying earlier about the, the historical research, where you have to be so careful looking at um, chronicles of this time, because uh, later on when the Civil War started, uh, the, Anne and Frankie were used as examples mainly of how corrupt the court was and their story was paraded around you know with the things like this going on was that was the argument how can you possibly trust uh, a king or a court to be the fount of knowledge or the fount of um, morality and often and people at the time did think that what they'd done would cause God to punish the country and so on so yes they were often cited later on as a cause of the Civil War. Oh, that's interesting. And you were talking earlier about how the novel is told through Anne's perspective, and we hear her thoughts and her often quite candid thoughts on the events that unfurl. And while there are obviously letters and other documents authored by women in this period that still exist to this day, we equally rarely get to read a first person memoir by a woman from this era. So we wondered whether writing the novel in the first person voice as opposed to, you know, third person was a way of sort of reclaiming this lost female voice um, or whether there was any other reasons why you kind of chose to do that. No, that was exactly what was going on in my in my head when I started it. I wanted it to be first person and I did write a version that was first person. But as I was saying before, the structure of it to follow the historical events, but still make it exciting. I thought, oh, this isn't going to work. So then I made it third person. I thought, well, I can chop it around more. But then eventually I thought, no, because we lose the power of feeling like we're hearing her voice. So then I turned it back into first person and I sort of worked out the, the structural issues that I was having. And as soon as I read that version, I thought, yes, it has to be first person. We have to be able to hear her. And part of what I think really motivated me to do the book was that their voices had been so silenced they'd been used so much as political pawns in other arguments and and they were never given the chance to speak not even at their trials so the book very much was a, f a feeling I had that they were sort of talking to me across 400 years saying tell our story give us some complexity give us a voice so it was very much about um, giving them that voice 
but trying as much as possible to make it authentic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've kind of thought about the historical role of the women and the importance of portraying that in a very meaningful way. And I think we haven't touched on female friendship yet. And obviously, Frankie and Anne are a, a, absolute heart of the novel. You know, they're at the core of it, especially. And I think Anne's real love for Frankie comes through all the way through. Um, I wondered if you could kind of speak a bit about what your aims were uh, with their friendship and their connection and, you know, what you kind of saw in them and what you wanted to deliver kind of using their story in this novel. Yeah, I, it's a tricky one, this, because I'm not sure I went out with any p- particular purpose other than to explore what it was. So to, to give them back complexity was my main goal so I didn't have any particular axe to grind about friendship or anything really I just wanted to see what felt truthful Um, but I know from my own experience that female friendships have been incredibly comforting and supporting and often it's my female friends that have sort of pushed me on to greater heights or greater challenges or whatever and I, and I thought, well, in this world that Frank and Anne inhabited, where they were so often amongst other women, not with men, and where actually friendships with men were either totally not allowed, or even with your husband, it wasn't encouraged, really. It wasn't seen as a sort of friendship role like it is today. I thought, well, more and more, you would be thrown into the world of women, and I wonder how that worked. So, yeah, I think it was an exploration of it. And for them, they, they found um, solace in each other. But very much they also, um, they, were, they were useful to each other. There was an element of um, both of them not using the other, but using the other's talents. In fact, I remember, I think it was Vivian Westwood. So I can't remember, a fashion designer, um, designed something for Princess Diana, actually. And, you know, she, Diana was a fantastic sort of walking um, mod, well, a model for, for, this, for this thing, but it was also beneficial to Princess Diana as well and how she was portrayed and what she wanted to say about herself. And I suddenly thought, well, of course, exactly those thoughts would have been true 400 years ago as well, where what you wore was even more important than what, than how, what it is now. Yeah, I think it's super interesting from a historical perspective as well, because these female friendships uh, are very hard, hard to record and then hard to dig out. Um, and I think being able to, as you said, use that materiality and think about the uh, way they're useful to each other and how they could have benefited each other as a way in, what items they might have shared, things like that. I think, yeah, it definitely is a very important thing that came out of the novel um, as well. Mm. There's always been an interest in historical fiction, but particularly over the last sort of five years or so, we've seen historical novels that deal with women's issues and women and what they were feeling during big historical moments kind of really come to the fore. Such as The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins, for example. So we wondered uh, whether you think there's kind of been a bit of a boom in historical novels dealing with women's issues um, and what you think kind of the significance is of sort of rewriting or resetting female perspectives in historical literature. Yeah, there, there has been a move to that, thank goodness. It's about time. And, it, and I think it follows what's happened in historical research itself, where it seems people have become slightly less interested in sort of the corn laws or what this king did or that queen did. And they've been lo- there's been a big move towards looking at more ground root stuff, 
what was it like for people who aren't in the historical record? So women, the poor, you know, people who aren't up there, ambassadors and kings and so on. And you hear sometimes, don't you, you hear that expression, oh, it was a men's world. I keep hearing that at the moment. And I'm thinking, well, no, it wasn't a men's world. It was a men's and a women's world. But we just don't know about the women, what was going on for them. But it doesn't mean their experience is any less important than the men's experience. And it's just as interesting to most readers. So, yeah, there has been a, a move, I think, in novels towards that. I think it does follow the historical research. Of course, as a novelist, if you're not a historian, you need good research in order to get this information that, that you can bring to life, bring the imagination into it. And so I certainly found, perhaps not in the main books on, on the subject, but all, the, all that research I was talking about earlier about the side research into what London was like or what clothing meant at the time or the whole yellow rough, the, the, the history behind using saffron starch, absolutely vital for my book, fantastically interesting research. So I, th I think because there is much more of that sort of research around, then there's a lot more material for novelists to use um, so that their, their books can have real weight um, and, and real veracity. So it's not just imagination. And I think the whole move away from a sort of romantic idea of what the past was to something much more A, credible and B, sort of visceral, um, I think, you know, that's allowing us to have much more insight into what women's worlds could have been. Yeah, I think it's a definitely a absolutely completely like correct point that without the research to help novelists to unpick the worlds they're trying to inhabit, then how can you do anything? And I think there's also a flip side to that that I'm interested in, which is that I think uh, historical novels have always been popular and there are some really big hitters like Hilary Mantel, Ken Follett, you know, who are really key um, in basically, I think, letting the public into history and giving them more access. And um, I think there are also people who say, oh, it's still historical fact fiction, not historical fact. Um, and I think like, I was just gonna ask what you think is kind of the role of historical fiction, both in our own study of history um, at the higher level and at you know, even the school level where, for example, I'm encouraged as a teacher to read historical novels to be able to deliver history to my kids. Like, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I, I think it's fascinating. I love I love this idea that we we sort of give historians this sort of this sort of throne to sit on that somehow they're like scientists and there are there is historical fact. But as I increasingly found out in my research, there's very little historical fact. There there are very few um, facts that aren't disputed. Uh, there are sources, but historians, just like novelists, have to put their sources together to tell a story and as we've seen recently there's been a huge revisionism in history looking at it in a different way so, so historians are also interpreting information in the light of their own prejudices their own experiences and so on so they may not be novelists and they may not imagine things to the extent that say I have in this book but they're definitely using um, tools of narrative to put together the bits of information they have to, to, to make it into a story that we can all understand. Um, and so I suppose I don't put historians on a pedestal particularly because it's not like doing mathematics or so on. It, there is a lot of interpretation in there. Um, and I think a good, well, a novelist who's interested in history and interested in making it as 
as truthful as you can, given what um, evidence there is. They, we do rely a lot on, on, on good historical research. And as Navalis said, novels arise out of the shortcomings of history. So there's so much that the historical record doesn't tell you, but that's where the novelist comes in and can you know, do her best to fill in those blanks in a way that is, is meaningful and as truthful as possible. There have been like lots of uh, TV and film hits that have kind of taken inspiration from historical novels and things like that. Uh, the Favourite, for example, um, which actually used interesting modern day music or Bridgerton, which went for diverse casting. So I think there's been some yeah historical novels being used for real strides in entertainment. If you were going to have your novel adapted to the small or the silver screen or the big screen, where would you like to see it go? Yeah, there has been some interest in, um, in, in doing it as a film. Um, how would I want to see it? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe my vision's quite um, old-fashioned. I have in my mind a bit, Thelma and Louise, they've always been in my mind, this idea of two women just taking off and causing such chaos. And actually what they do often is it would be considered criminal, like my women, but when you understand their motives, then you can see it from a different perspective so I suppose I'd like it to be done in a way that feels very modern as I hope the book does because of course if you were living at that time it is your that is your contemporary so I'd want it to have that very modern feel um, whether I'd want modern music probably not I am a bit of a pedant I quite like knowing what it was really like then so I, I suppose I wouldn't want quite as much um, sort of in mod sort of interpretation of it as perhaps those two films you've mentioned but yes I still like it to have a very um sort of contemporary and uh unstuffy feel and obviously we just mentioned two you know recent popular historical dramas but we wondered if as a final question there were any other tv or books or films that you've been enjoying over the past year historical dramas or otherwise that you'd love to recommend to us and also to our listeners Oh, historical ones. Well, obviously the Hilary Mantel ones. Maybe I'll go back a bit. So one of my favourite historical novels is by Andrew Miller and it's called Pure. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I love that book as well. <laughs> love that book. And whenever I can't get inspired, I just read a couple of pages and that makes me feel better. And obviously Rose Tremaine, I think, is an amazing writer. So her book, Restoration, was a big inspiration. Uh, I read I do read all the time. Quite a lot of the books I read are from the 30s and 40s, so it's quite an unusual stuff. So uh, I'm not sure how much people would want to, to read that. But um, oh, I'll tell you one that is very old, Tolstoy. I've, I've recently reread um, oh. War and Peace. And, you know, it's incredibly readable. It's historical. Incredibly, I mean, it's historical as he was writing about events 50 years before his time. Very readable. Very, very good fun, actually. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much out there, quite hard yeah. to limit to sort of cut it down to one or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a good, a good bunch there, absolutely. And some <laughs> sort of totally different things as well. That was the, that was like, you know, the lockdown goal for a lot of people last year was read War and Peace. Um, so I feel like that's a good one to take us into the new year as well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I tore okay. it in half. Oh, really? I made oh, wow. it much easier. I had a paperback oh. and I tore it in half and I read one half and then I read the second because you can't sit in bed holding this enormous book but if you do it in two yeah. half. Good tip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, um, thank you so much, Lucy. This has been great. Uh, oh, we love to talk to you too. Okay, so uh, thank you so much to Lucy for that really insightful, interesting conversation. So I'm, a, I'm a history teacher, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, and being able to read a novel like this and then hear from a, an accomplished historian who wrote it. Yeah, mm. absolutely love it. So yeah, big thanks to Lucy for your expertise in, and talking to us. Absolutely. It was brilliant to speak to Lucy. And yeah, we want to thank her again for taking the time to talk to us all about Annette for Small Fishes. It was so interesting to hear about all the research that she'd put into the book and how passionate she was about giving women who are maybe kind of forgotten in history, giving them a voice. So Helena, I wanted to ask you, because you are a massive historical fiction fan. I mean, we both are, but I think, as you mentioned, you studied history. It's something that you're really, really interested in. So I wanted to ask you, what were your expectations going into this novel and where they met, where they exceeded, what was the reading experience like for you? Funnily enough, like I, I don't know why it missed. I don't know why I missed it, but I didn't actually know it was a real historical thing until mm. uh, halfway through. Um, I'm very used to reading, and I'll mention them later. Some really well crafted historical novels that have all the fine detail of the real history but just have their own characters they've made up. So I've always very happily plodding along being like, yeah, this is totally what I think women in the 17th century would have gone through. Cool, absolutely. That's a great bit as well I really liked where they go to like a, a, like a witch doctor, basically. Yeah. Uh, and now thinking back on it, I'm like, of course, like the Stuarts, uh, you know, the Stuart society had these random witch doctors who could try and tell your future while getting you high, basically, on some herbal remedies. Um, you know, the Stuarts are obsessed with witches. So it, does, it doesn't surprise me. But yeah, and, and that is a really a point I will say I loved about the novel was the extent of the historical detail. People love Hilary Mantel's work because it is very rooted in historical reality. And I think Lucy Jago does a very, very good job of, of that as well. You know, right down to the detail of the clothing, which interestingly, I think as a historian is a really great way to, to like shoehorn yourself into a historical period is to get to grips mm. with what they wear, materials they use, things they touch, books, uh, crockery, food. You know, that, the history of the material is such a great way to get involved in a historical period and to really see what they see. So even down to like her knowing the streets of London and being able to sort of trace an, uh, a character's journey through London, like 17th century London, it was really, really cool. Um, so yeah, I, I that didn't surprise me, but I was glad to see a really thoroughly researched novel that such great historical depth and detail that it felt really, really real. Um, and yeah, and I was also, Oh, and halfway through, I realised that it was real. I did do the classic historian thing and start Wikipediaing. You know how people, when they watch The Crown, they start desperately Wikipediaing yeah. everything that's <laughs> happened and they find out it may or may not have happened. Um, and the, the whole affair, uh, Frankie Howard and Ann Turner, uh, Ann Turner being the more notorious for various reasons, um, was so interesting. And I had no idea these women existed, which just shows you the historical record doesn't hide them away as such. It just doesn't try and illuminate them. So I thought that was really cool. And I kind of felt very guilty as a historian that I didn't know about them. So <laughs> I'm endeavoring to uh, endeavoring to just continue to read novels like this, I think, to improve my historical knowledge. Um, but yeah, I think definitely what stuck out to me was the great level of detail that Lucy was able to show us. Um, what about you? I know you mentioned that you thought the characters were like 
really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the reasons perhaps we don't know about this story is that whilst it was linked with the court of James I, it wasn't like directly related to politics or directly related to a kind of, um, you know, well-known historical event that impacted like or directly impacted the people at large. I mean, we talked a little bit with Lucy about how the inf- infamy of Anne Tyler and Frankie Howard did impact how women were treated subsequently. But yeah, it's not a kind of like, it's not like the gunpowder plot or something like where obviously it was kind of seen as a political event. So I think that's a big part of it. So instead, it was actually more of a social event. And it was about like social history, almost, as you say, in terms of like all the references to material items and just how people like live their lives. And I think that for me was also a really rich part of the book. But I think even more so for me was probably the relationship between Anne and Frankie and how Lucy as the writer kind of built that up and builds them both up as interesting characters separately but that when they were together that's when the novel kind of came alive because you got to see how they related to one another and as you were saying earlier how they helped each other and how they were committed to being there for one another at a time when actually being there for one another wasn't very easy and involved a lot of well a lot of sidestepping around male authority and like the patriarchal society so yeah, that was really interesting to me. And I think also how she made both characters very grounded, as far as I could tell, in their historical realities. Like, they weren't anachronistic, but they were also relatable and they, they had relatable emotions and a relatable connection as friends. I think I expected that relationship to perhaps blossom in, into something maybe more explicitly romantic. And with I don't want to spoil the novel and say whether that does or doesn't happen, but I think it perhaps didn't happen in quite the way I anticipated. But yeah, I would really recommend this book. Definitely 100% for people who are big fans of historical fiction, for sure. Um, but I would also recommend it to anyone who just wants a book that kind of has, um, you know, in-depth relationships and complex female characters and a lot to kind of sink your teeth into. And like, I wouldn't say it was escapist because obviously it has a, a lot of very like difficult and depressing Uh, subject matters in lots of ways but I think there is something about reading a historical novel it's like it's getting you out of yourself and kind of absorbing you in another time and another period uh, which always has relation to our current society that you can kind of draw parallels with so yeah I thought it was a great read as well. One thing about it that I think it does feel at times particularly near the end that you're plodding towards uh, you know, she's placing the puzzle pieces in place to allow for the ending to happen as it did. Um, and essentially that's the problem. You know, you're you're bound to the tide of where the novel, where Anne and Frankie's story ended. And she couldn't get away from that. So I think as you're reading, sometimes, you know, you kind of feel that pull and then it starts to take you out of it. Um, and I just think that in terms of, uh, I think it's a an interesting question for how you write a historical novel that, you know, follows the story without too obviously following the story you know what I mean but that's not so much a criticism it's more just like I think it's a difficulty of writing that I definitely noticed kind of near the end you know it was like I did this then Mm. I did that then I did this you know it was very sort of like uh what's the word um like expository like when you're just kind of explaining what happened I think that's a really interesting point that actually is just a consequence of writing something based on a true event um, and obviously when the true event is really well known, like, for you know, maybe not the great best example, but like the Titanic, for example, like everybody knows that's to come. 
Um, but I think when it's like a story has to end in a certain way, like another example would be like Mary Queen of Scots, you know, that film adaptation um, that came out recently. It's like we all know that at the end she's going to be beheaded and you're you are to a slight degree kind of anticipating that happening. Um, so, yeah, that's a, an interesting one. I guess it's a bit of a dilemma for authors. And I think, you know, um, perhaps not every reader would have that experience with this book, because if you didn't if you didn't research it uh midway through like you did and like I also did I feel like that as you say classic move and like very classic hours to do that but um some people might not do that and then they might actually be surprised by the end um but there was a feeling slightly of inevitability about the end regardless I think just knowing uh what we know about yeah uh how these kind of events sometimes unfurl I, obviously the only kind of workaround with that is to actually tell like a counterfactual version of the story the example that's coming to mind, spoiler alert if you have not seen this film, but it has been out for a while, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, how the ending of that film is like unexpected because it's not actually what happened in the story. So I think if you were watching that movie, you would be anticipating the horrific events at the end happening and then they don't happen in the way that they happened in real life. So obviously that there is like a place for like counterfactual historical writing. Lucy Jago's book is definitely not that. She was not intending it to be. Um, and nor should she, you know, like there's no requirement that she should. But yeah, I think part of the joy of reading this book is actually researching the history and then getting to discuss it with fellow readers um, like we're doing now. So yeah, I think that kind of brings us to the end of our discussion about Lucy Jago's A Net for Small Fishes. Um, we've already kind of covered this but it is also a very beautiful book, this beautiful yellow cover which has a larger significance which we kind of went into a little bit with Lucy in the interview. I agree with you and the yellow cover, well I'm looking at my bookshelf right now and uh, yellow is very in. Uh, I can see Bernardino Baristo's book, The Yellow Book. I can see a book about medieval mathematics. The yellow book is very pleasing so I think definitely one for definitely one for the bookshelves if you ask me like um it's it's up my street I'll admit that but I also think that it's just like for discussions today about women's place and also about the role of history which continues to be a discussion but I think uh given some of the actions of the culture secretary more recently that I won't go into uh his the teaching and learning and way we look at history is uh, always an important issue to be part to be thinking about a Net for Small Fishes is out now in the UK, so you can go and get a copy of this beautiful yellow book yourself. Um, it is also on ebook and audiobook. All right, let's move on. So we've made some interesting points, I believe, about the role of <laughs> counterfactual history and also about the role of uh, historical programming uh, books, etc. Nothing has been more popular, really, that also, I think, asks some interesting historical questions, as well mm-hmm. as has some sexy historical goings on, uh, <laughs> as uh, Netflix's new show, Bridgerton, uh, made by Shondaland, Shonda Rhimes, of uh, mm-hmm. Grey's Anatomy fame. Uh, and a Grey's Anatomy, to promise you, was an unbelievable hospital in terms of what happened in it to begin with. So slightly <laughs> taking the fantasy to the historical to the historical world of the Regency period in England, I think is totally up Shonda's street. Bridgerton was released on Netflix on Christmas Day. Actually, now that's almost two months ago, but the show continues to be a massive part of the zeitgeist. And I think right away, the show made a splash and proved itself to be like the perfect piece of escapism 
and it was so luscious and sumptuous and beautiful to watch and easy to sink yourself into, which was just what I think the world was after uh, during a pandemic Christmas. Everything in it is beautiful. All the actors, very beautiful. All the costumes, very beautiful. To say the show has been popular is kind of an understatement. It's actually Netflix's biggest series ever, which is amazing to think of. And I think, you know, for you and I, Helena, this show was absolutely up our street and we were always going to watch it. I mean, you came to it with your own expectations and history, which I'll let you go into. But it has been so exciting and so interesting to see the show be so popular among such a large audience. But before we go any further, I think you, as the Bridgerton expert, should give the listeners a bit of a lowdown on what the show is about. Even though I imagine most people have probably watched it by now, but for anyone who hasn't. Yes, so Bridgerton, uh, well, Bridgerton is set in, I'd say, 18th century. It's Regency, it's Jane Austen, prime period. All the women have those, like, empire waists right under their boobs. Um, yeah. That, think, think about that, basically. And it's, it's The Bridgerton is referenced to a family called the Bridgertons, who have, oh God, seven or so children, each uh, oldest to youngest, named by a letter of the alphabet of Anthony, Benedict, Colin, Daphne, uh George or Gregor or something and then Hyacinth. Eloise, Francesca. I must say I was disappointed that Francesca was not a main character and instead she was kind of absent for reasons that were unexplained but I'm ready for her to have her time in the future. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> it's basically um, it's basically about their love lives so if you don't know there is a huge 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 genre of books romantic novels uh and there's romantic novels for vampires uh for like modern day cowboys uh for like uh doctors like there there are there are romance novels for all of these different things but there is a huge section of regency era romance novels that are set specifically during these 100 years or so mm -hmm. and it's basically based around dukes and earls who need wives and they all go to these events they're part of the ton which is the uh, the british word well it's french but it's the word for like society in those days and it's all about going to balls meeting the love of your life uh, and, and it's quite subversive in that sense, because obviously, as we know, companion, companion, companionship marriage wasn't really a thing, uh, particularly even in Britain, until maybe uh, the Victorian period, where the middle classes became bigger, uh, and then they got more used to companionate marriage, because you used to support and help each other out. Uh, for economical reasons. Well, uh, these books are all about the aristocracy who have so much money, they don't know what to do with it and just swan around just doing whatever they want. Um, and it's basically about love stories, really, in this era. And obviously it's counterfactual because I think someone did the math and it's like, according to some of these romance novelists who've written many, many books about dukes, there's only been between five and 10 dukes, I think, in England, in England's history, that it's such a high ranking, there haven't been that many. Uh, there's like <laughs> up in the, th in the hundreds of dukes in England, according mm. to these romance novelists. So it's- <laughs> They're like everywhere you look. Yeah, yeah, and it is this counterfactual world where women actually have a bit more uh, independent spirits than they normally would. Some of them run businesses by themselves. I'm not saying that that wasn't possible, but I think the amount of independent women uh, in these in these worlds in this world is just not real. And also, men who are willing to subvert the patriarchy and marry a woman of their dreams who they love, no matter who she is, regardless of rank. Sometimes, again, it's also like a bit of a pipe dream. So that's a funny thing so basically Bridgerton is one of those novels there's seven of them I think maybe some other novels thrown in they're written by a woman named Julia Quinn she wrote one for each 
uh, sibling, starting with Georgie Daphne, sorry, Daphne, uh, and uh, Bridgerton series one deals with Daphne's story, uh, and then Bridgerton season two will deal with uh, another ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and my funny story about Bridgerton is that basically I, uh, when I was like 13, I had a Palm Pilot, revealing my age here, uh, and on this Palm Pilot, uh, with some ebooks. Uh, this is back in the days before Kindles, actually, really. Uh, and the, the Duke and I, the book that Bridgerton is based on, was on that Palm Pilot. Do not ask me why. <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> it's not an appropriate read for a 13 year old, uh, though it's not half as racy as some of the novels. I've read over 200 ro- Regency romance novels, by the way. Uh, I'm actually a bit of an expert. And um, Julia Quinn's, to be honest with you, are actually not that racy in comparison to some that I've read. Hers are pretty tame. Mm. Um, anyway, and I read it and loved it. I remember highlighting bits that I liked. I thought Simon was this like, in the book, he's even more dreamy. Like, my goodness, he is like tortured and also like so in love with Daphne, but doesn't even know it. And uh, the story reads better if, if than it actually watches, if you ask me, but I'm a book purist. Um, yeah, so I, to come back to the point of the story, I read all, I've read like five of the Bridgerton series. They get progressively worse, if you ask me, because Julia Quinn has done all the classic tropes, so she has to find mm. new ones. But um, the other stories, Anthony's is great. I remember Benedict and Collins is cool. So um, we're looking forward to some great other seasons of Bridgerton, which will be to do with their stories. But mm-hmm. I remember hearing about Bridgerton late in the game. I don't know what I was doing with my head under a rock. And uh, my sister also watched it and loved it. And I was a bit like, hype, and I hate hype. Uh, yeah, if you know anything about me, I hate hype beyond anything else. So I didn't really watch it because I was like, you know what? I read the books. I'm a Regency novel purist, but also expert. And I'm not really interested. I've been saying for ages that these books are escapist, fun, actually quite feminist in lots of ways. Um, mm-hmm. And they always have a happy ending. That's something you pointed out that we should point out before we discuss this episode is that they do, they, they follow a formula that is basically a mathematical formula for how these books work. It's a varying situation. So it's Duke or Earl meets high ranking woman. Uh, they get into a situation where they have reason to get married. Something gets in their way, but they get married and they turn up in a novel novel. That's literally how it goes. Mm-hmm. So I like them a lot because of the fact that I find them very comforting. And I used to read them when I was doing exams and stuff instead of actually doing the revision. So I was a bit like, I don't, Shonda, I'm a bit like Grey's Anatomy is a crazy, crazy show. So I was a bit like, I don't really know if I want Shonda's adaptation of a of series that I love and an, a, a genre that I love and I think actually deserves a lot more credit rather than a bunch of people saying, oh, Netflix have got such a cool show on. It's really my issue, right? Um, so that was really it. But I do think that I also, I watched it to hang out with a friend uh, a, a, a mutual friend of both mine and Francesca's and then I literally I think I watched it in a day because I was just like it is perfect like I've got to say like Shonda got it on the nose in terms of the the low level low stakes drama of did someone look at you or not while they were dancing with someone else <laughs> it's just so good I I love it and I think in terms of the spirit of the books it's really good but also and I'll stop talking in a minute that counterfactualness we're talking about where Shonda made an artistic decision to basically include people of color in the main roles of Mm -hmm. what roles we would typically expect. And I don't think this is the historical reality, expect to be white. 
Uh, and Shonda puts like the main character of Simon is played by Reggae Jean Paul, who is a black man and he has a he comes from a black family. And it's this idea that Shonda's putting in of like at some point in history, uh recent history in England, uh black people were given uh, knighthoods and earldoms, which can be bestowed by the monarchy. The queen herself is a black woman. So it's the idea that like, uh, they've gained a status of white people in, the sh- in, in this world. And mm-hmm. that is the only, that's the only explanation. There is no questioning of it otherwise really there. And I, I absolutely loved that because I thought there's been so much discussion uh, about not rewriting history as such, but actually like representing history in a slightly different way, whether it be acknowledging that like there were black people in England for a long time before you know migration happened in the 20th century uh and also that there's no reason to have white people play all historical characters in england there's no there's no reason to expect that because it's it's all made up anyway uh especially bridgerton as i said it's a made-up <laughs> world so i absolutely loved that she did that and i honestly think it makes the show it elevates it beyond just a smutty drama into like a really interesting smutty drama that actually forwards furthers representation on TV. And I've been talking for 10 minutes now, so I will shut up and (laughs) let you talk about what you thought about Bridgerton now that I've told my dumb story and tangents all over the place. Yeah, you're completely right. I think, um, you know, when the show was being talked about, like in the lead up to the premiere, it was being called colorblind casting. And then the creator, um, so Shonda Rhimes is obviously the producer. The creator is somebody called Chris Van Dusen. And he was like, it's not colourblind casting, it's colour conscious casting. Every time we decided a character should be played by an actor of colour, it was exactly that. It was a decision. So Chris Van Dusen, Shondaland and the casting creatives involved in Bridgerton built that into the ethos of the show. As you say, Helena, it was refreshing and it was so great to see a show with a diverse cast and to see that show make such an impact in the TV world. Some felt it was inadequate, however, and one criticism levied against the show is that its treatment of race erases the centuries of racism and oppression in Britain. Some people of colour feel that isn't helpful and doesn't do much to further telling the real-life stories of black people in England and in the UK at this time. There's also been discussion about how most of the black actors on the show are light-skinned and there's a lack of representation of darker-skinned black people. There also aren't many South Asian actors in the show, but it will be interesting to see how Bridgerton takes on these critiques going forward. I hope its second season will be even better. If you're interested in this topic, though, I would really recommend a YouTube video called Race Baiting, Queer Baiting, Colorism, Featurism and Performative Diversity on Khadija Mabal's YouTube channel. I think one thing the show crucially has demonstrated is that audiences want to see representation. We want to see diversity on screen. And that's a really interesting extra point about the show. So a lot of people also talked about this uh, sense of empowerment, right? Uh, The woman who played Daphne, um, very much, as she's spoken before about like how um they you know she and the people who made the show viewed the role of women as that the women in the show question they go out by themselves they don't accept their place you know uh Daphne's got a sister Eloise who I think nearly every single line she has is why do I have to get married because she Mm. doesn't want to uh which is really interesting because it sparks that discussion as well and you know um and also it's the sense of reclaiming female sexuality and again I point out that like (laughs) 
uh, Regency romance novels have been, and others, not just Regency, have been reclaiming female sexuality for literally yonks. Uh, going back to Georgette Heyer, who is one of the earliest like romance novel writers. Uh, she's a world mm-hmm. classic. Uh, and it's it's funny because it's like people, uh, this is why I don't like hype because people are like, oh my God, someone's finally doing it. And you're like, hello, did you not read Devil yeah. in Winter? Which I made the book club read, sorry. <laughs> anyway, my point is, is I think it's again important to think about normal people, etc., have really shown us the importance of intimacy being portrayed properly on screen. Uh, because mm-hmm. of the various issues that we have with like violent sexual encounters being glamorized in games and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's one good thing the show does, right? Like they show some graphic sex, not as graphic as normal people really, but still quite graphic. Uh, and it's meant to be from like the women's eye, right? Like you have the ridiculously hot men who you get to see shirtless and everyone's like, oh, wow. But also <laughs> someone made this good point to me. I can't remember who it was. I mean, it was my sister actually. Sorry, I'm outing my sister here for watching Bridgerton to be embarrassed. Uh, but it's like, she was a bit like, is it the female gaze? Because also the sex wasn't really that realistic. And I'm like, mm. in terms of where it's done in the rain on a slippery uh, <laughs> marble <laughs> edifice with some clothes on, some clothes off on staircases, uh, immensely quickly, et cetera, et cetera. I do think it's a funny one that like, it's all about female empowerment and like, you know, making sexual encounters be all about not just about the man's view of it, right? And I think the show does that well because, you know, it's Daphne, a big thing of it is Daphne finding and owning her own sexuality. But also, why why can't we get away from ridiculously hyper, hyper unrealistic, uh, what's the word, scenes about sex? Because normal people did it quite realistically. And I don't think that Bridgerton does it that realistically, aside from there being two people there. I think Bridgerton in general, like, as you say, kind of eschews realism. And as well, you could also argue that like both Daphne and Simon are quite kind of like, I mean, you even said it earlier, like these romance novels tend to be working archetypes and Daphne is very much like the blushing flower, like ingenue. What is she called? Like the diamond of the first water. And oh God, I think it's stop going on about that, isn't it? (laughs) that That was a very, like that line appeared a lot. And then Simon is like the tortured Duke. They both fit into those archetypes anyway. And those archetypes are quite gendered is what I was going to say. So, you know, it's not like, yes, it's obviously progressive in lots of ways, but I think you can't read too much or put too much onto it that clearly like isn't there. Like you couldn't say that it was like, it is obviously feminist in lots of ways, but also Daphne's role, like she is very like, you know, you see her blossom through the series, you see her assert herself more, absolutely. But like, it does very much start with like, she could be any kind of main character in a period novel who's, you know, she's probably less feisty or assertive than like Elizabeth Bennet, for example, from Pride and Prejudice. So yeah, I guess it's an interesting one that like, and also I think it's really interesting what you're saying about how as, as a lover of romance, novels and someone who's read so many of them it was quite weird to see people kind of go crazy for Bridgerton and like act like it was revolutionary uh in terms of just simply like the plot and the premise because that's something you'd enjoyed for so long and I know there were a lot of other people saying that online that like in general Bridgerton's success has kind of reignited a conversation about the romance genre and that conversation at times has been like probably quite frustrating for people who've long been part of that world I will totally recommend Lisa Kleepass to everybody. She is an amazing, amazing romance novelist. Uh, one of the best 
romance novel heroes, Sebastian um, St. Vincent, oof, is, <laughs> yeah, he's in her novel Devil in Winter. Uh, definitely, definitely read that, dear listeners, because uh, you think Bridgerton's sexy, woof, you got to listen to these, read these ones. Um, funny enough, Devil in Winter, that book with Sebastian St. Vincent in it by Lisa Kleepas, turned up unexpectedly as one of 13 or so other romance novels in my sixth form common room when I was a teenager. Uh, they just turned up in a pile and me and my friends, or well, the whole year really, ripped them and opened them up and were like, oh my God. Uh, so whoever left those 13 books in my year 12 common room when I was 17 years old, um, thank you, I guess. It's, it's very interesting how like you had two different circumstances of like romance novels basically just being like given to you in this very odd way that was like kind of fate. Like, I, yeah, I feel like if you were a main character in the show, that would then be, I don't know, you could be in one of those TV shows where like people go back into, or they like enter the world of a book. I feel like that could be a romance novel. Being sucked into a romance novel would be so cool. I would love it. Oh my God. But actually, I think to kind of be back on, get a bit back on track, like the way the show is filmed, it kind of is like a bit like that is what's happened to you because, you know, we were talking earlier about the sumptuousness and the kind of fantastical element. And I think a big part of that is like the colours of like the pinks and yellows and like the flowers and like the beautiful country homes and like the acting is also really good. I mean, we we haven't really talked specifically about it, but all the actors I think are like brilliant in their roles and bring gravitas to the roles when need be and like, you know, uh, take their characters and their characters um, at times kind of like what perhaps seems to us like petty disagreements they take them seriously and they bring them to life in a way that feels true um but I think one thing that's kind of interesting you touched on it earlier is that Bridgerton is a series of books where each sibling takes the center stage for a book and we've seen Daphne and Simon's story come to a close and in the novel that's very much like they had their happy ending um I think in a TV series, people's expectations are maybe a little bit more like Outlander-esque, where you expect like different things to happen to them going forward and for us to continue to follow their story. But actually, the plan is in the second season that we will follow Anthony Bridgerton's story. Anthony Bridgerton, quite an annoying character in the series, but I understand that he is less annoying in the book. They made it worse in the series. So I think in their attempt to make him like this sort of uh, sort of man with the weight, unwanted weight of his father's responsibility on his shoulders, mm-hmm. he became a bit of a dick. Like he was quite rude to his own mother and like deliberately, I, I get it was for plot, but kind of deliberately tried to like hook up his sister with this horrible man. But that was really only so that Simon could then punch him in the face. So um, poor Anthony. I do think that in the book, he's not half as like uh, domineering. <laughs> Well, I really like the actor. I mean, I, I don't. I wouldn't have said I liked Anthony, uh, based on the you know the show. But um, the actor Jonathan Bailey is uh you know a great actor. So I'm you know I feel like there's definitely scope for that being a a good second season. And they also literally like as we are speaking, like it was happened yesterday. They just announced he will be playing his love interest. So in season two, Anthony Bridgerton will become involved with Kate Shaw played by sex education actor Simone Ashley. In the novel, she's called Kate Sheffield. So this is Bridgerton once again doing colour conscious casting. According to a report from Deadline, Kate will be of Indian descent. This is great too, as we'll get to see some more South Asian representation in the show. 
So the story of the Viscount who loved me. Um, so we we saw Simon. Sorry, we saw uh, Anthony sort of have this on again, off again relationship with a, a opera singer, which isn't mm -hmm. really in the first book. But I think it's more just to kind of add a bit more depth to Anthony's character. Just like you know what goes on with Colin and Benedict, the two other brothers, a little bit. Um, but in this, yeah, in this book, it's all about Anthony uh, as the first brother, as the first son. He is the one who's going to inherit the Viscount label name he already has it he has to look after his family he has to marry someone and he basically the the premise is is he is looking to marry someone suitable and interestingly he decides on kate's sister as the suitable bride for her viscount he wants a nice bride like a proper like will be good for his family kind of bride which basically means he doesn't love them but that doesn't matter um, we know Anthony's been burned by love before. Uh, so, and then Kate is her older sister who doesn't believe in marriage slash has opinions of her own, uh, doesn't like Anthony. And then obviously mishaps occur where he falls in love with Kate accidentally and then has to do something. Yeah, basically that's the premise. And to be honest with you, again, it's a classic. They can't get married for whatever reason, but they end up wanting to. It's gonna be fun. Love it. Really excited for that. And I like that they've got another, you know, of course, beautiful lead, but I'm sure, um, I'm sure she'll be a good, good fit. Again, Kate is, if I remember, smart and quite headstrong. And again, mm -hmm. uh, not hard for a beautiful actress to play that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. I mean, her character in Sex Education is like very much a kind of secondary supporting character, but like it, she did stand out to me um and as soon as I saw that headline I was like oh that, I mean obviously I've not read the books this is purely just me like getting excited for like what it might be I'm also really excited to hear that they're pressing forward with the second season and hopefully we'll have that on our screens to enjoy before too long as a final point I did want to speak to you Helena about the narrator of Bridgerton none other than the wonderful Julie Andrews and she plays or she is the voice of this enigmatic unknown character who is called Lady Whistledown who is kind of narrating proceedings and runs this sort of gossip newsletter where she reports on the goings-on in London. At the end of Bridgerton's first series they reveal who Lady Whistledown really is and it might be a bit of a surprise for people watching the show but my understanding is that doesn't happen in the book. Like the mystery is kind of kept going for a bit longer. So I wonder if you could tell me a bit more about that without giving away who Lady Westerland actually is. They don't talk about it as much at all in the book. And nobody, Eloise doesn't have this like jaunt to find her. They wonder okay. who she is, but this whole like the extra stuff with the queen and the hunting down and the runners, like, that doesn't happen in the book. Um, in the book, it's revealed who it is uh, because in the fourth book, it's about her. Um, in the books, it's, I think because in the book, she was more of like, and everyone called it like Gossip Girl. And I disagree with that because Gossip Girl, I don't like it. Um, but I agree that there's this like otherworldly voice who seems to know exactly what's going on. In the books, I feel like it was just more of a, what's the word? It was being used as more of a just vehicle for plot. Um, this person on the in the books who could just tell you what was going on uh, but also just spread some gossip and it's always good to have somebody who might reveal your secret therefore you have to try and hide it that's kind of one of the big things about mm -hmm. why Daphne and Simon get together in the first place but I think she became so central 
And also people liked it so much back when they were written years ago that I think Julia Quinn decided to give her, give her a decide who she was, which is why for me, the person who is Lady Whistledown doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, these things never do. So I don't, I don't yeah. dislike who it is. I just think that doesn't really make much sense, but it's fine. I think they, they, they did try quite hard and the, and the actress who is Lady Whistledown, again, we're obviously not giving it away. She um made certain that she was like in all the scenes where she needed to have been in them to know what happened um and I did read an interview with her where she was like I like if the director kind of forgot about it I tried to make sure it still happened so I think they tried quite hard to make it make sense um I also think that one of the things that's actually really enjoyable about this series is the way it engages with kind of like rom-com tropes and like tropes that we're familiar with one of them being the kind of gossip girl style all-knowing narrator the other one, I think, being the uh, whole, like, fake dating thing. Like, so many people are always fake dating in TV and film. Which, uh, yeah, I kind of love. I feel like it's a really fun trope. So it was fun to see that play out. Oh, absolutely. And uh, again, uh, if anybody wants any recommendations for uh, romance novels to go, go to, um, definitely Lisa Kleepas. Uh, she's really great. And if I mine my Kindle library, I can probably find some other ones as well. Um, yeah, get my uh, palm pilot out. Uh, oh, God. Oh, Loretta Chase, Darcy Burke, all really good people. Someone called Kelly Bowen, um, Elizabeth Hoyt, really good. Lorraine Heath. Oh, there are so many. I've read so many. Lisa Kleepas, though, being the main one, I would really, really recommend. And also Stephanie Lawrence. So go back, listener. Note down all those names. Uh, <laughs> mostly pen names, I think. Julia London, also okay um and then go read them because there are so many out there and a lot of it is to do with uh having to marry someone just to protect your reputation that is a classic one they, they love that one devil and winter they do that too they get married fakely well real real married but but for fake reasons and <laughs> as i said i'm always ahead of the curve when it comes to these things everybody loves everybody loves romance novels now including my sister shout out to you she doesn't listen maybe she does i don't know um, yeah, well, I suppose we've uh, been discussing for uh, Bridgerton for a long time now. It might be time for us to clock off. Is there anything else you want to add, Francesca? Recommendations, thoughts, discussions about Simon? Well, I think we've actually been very restrained because we haven't just talked about Simon's general hotness, which could have been a, quite a lot of the episode. And like we've certainly been known to do that in the past, but we'll have to save that for another day slash our own WhatsApp conversations. Um, but I will say that um, like after watching Bridgerton, I was like, I need something else that kind of hits the same spot of being like fun and escapist and, you know, quite heartwarming, uh, all of that. And the other show that I kind of went to which is also based on a series of romance novels, but they are, I think, more like contemporary romance. I mean, maybe you would know more specifically what the genre is. Virgin River, which has been made into a TV series, and it's basically about this woman who has to escape from her terrible past and move to this small town, and there's a hot bar owner who's kind of a bit like a Luke Danes-type character. Oh, um, yeah, country-western. Yeah, country-western romances. Ah, I see. Well, I'd very much recommend that. It does become increasingly more unhinged in the second season, but the scenery remains absolutely gorgeous and the main character wears many great sweaters. Cool. Yeah, and for me, actually, if you're looking for anything history-esque, I'll go to my other side. If you want to learn about random bits of history that you didn't think you'd learn about, um, mm. there's a BBC podcast you can listen to called, you, called You're Dead to Me, which basically is like my dream job, um, getting to be Greg Jenner, the host, who is a public historian, but also uh, also uh, the horrible histories researcher. 
for the mm. amazing horrible history show getting to be uh the host of a comedy historical discussion podcast where you talk to comedians and also talk to uh academics it would be so anyway they have some great episodes on there including one about the role of uh how vampires became so popular in gothic literature you know a la dracula um mm. which was really really good um medieval people have some bonkers ideas about vampires and so you need to learn about it but yeah <laughs> so historical romance episode tick done yeah well thank you so much for listening and we want to thank lucy jago again for taking the time to speak to us yeah and also uh bridgerton and those books are available you can just look up julia quinn's website if you want to know the specific titles and we'll be back uh next month with more uh more content um and if you have uh, anything you want to suggest to us anything you want to discuss with us anything at all we have uh we're on twitter we'll at we're at real llw on twitter we're on instagram at love's labors watch and we also have got uh gmail uh for business inquiries if you have a book you want to pitch to us or a guest or anything like that do get in touch with us we are there at love's labors watched at gmail.com all lowercase uh we're really happy to consider anything for the show uh, we've got a couple of exciting guests coming up in the next few months mm -hmm. so yeah get those inquiries in um because <laughs> as we've noted most of the things that we talk about on the show tend to be on bestseller lists so just saying are we the, are we the factor here probably the hardworking <laughs> teams behind them nope us yes <laughs> other than that uh, thanks for listening hope you guys stay safe and well and we'll see you next time Bye. Bye. Bye.